Hello, everyone, and welcome to Energy Security Cube, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I am your host, CEO and President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. On today's episode, recorded December 15, 2021, we discuss the current state of the global oil market and other things that are happening currently, and what we might expect in 2022 and beyond with respect to oil supply and demand and, and issues in Northern Europe. And I'm so pleased to have joined us today from London, Amrita Sen. Dr. Amrita Sen is founding partner and director of research at Energy and Macro Research Consultancy, Energy Aspects. She is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a fellow with us at CGAI. Welcome, Amrita. Glad to be talking to you again today. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Great. Let's get right to it. Um, many have interpreted OPEC's decision to stick with their scheduled oil production increases at their recent meetings as a sign of confidence in the market beyond the Omicron variant. This is certainly, well, exploding is the wrong term, but there's a lot of moving parts here. Do you, do you share this fear? Do you think there are other factors at play? There are other factors at play as well, but I will say that they needed more time. If you think about when uh, Omicron really started to come up in the headlines, and when OPEC Plus met, they basically had three to four days. I've spoken with ministers um, subsequently and leading up to it, but they were saying very clearly, look, we just don't know if this is going to be, uh, I mean, and they asked us for our numbers because we, we ended up revising global demand down by half a million barrels per day for December and January because of the jet demand losses we were seeing and some of the other restrictions. Half a million barrels per day is not that big a number, especially given where you know, surging gas prices, uh, if it's a cold winter right now, Asia hasn't been cold, but if it gets cold, you can get some switching away from gas to oil. It could negate some of the Omicron-related down, um, downswing, right? So I think that was a big point for them, that they could pause, uh, they could even cut if required, but they just weren't sure whether this is a big deal or not. And I think even for the 4th of January meeting, the challenge for them is going to be, yes, case counts are surging, hospitalization is not necessarily rising as much because we are all a lot more vaccinated. Um, and I think it does make it quite challenging for, for them to act. I will say this, they are here to stop uh, the well, stop gap or put a, put a stop to prices falling too sharply. Uh, Prince Abdulaziz, uh, Saudi's energy minister, absolutely does not want big bills uh, in, in oil inventory. So he will make sure that if the market deteriorates, if balances deteriorate, they will step in and do something. So I'm not, I'm not worried about that. But I think on the fundamental level, they did need more information. But at the same time, I'll say this as well. There was a political dimension uh, to this meeting, prior meeting. We know in November what happened. The U.S. had asked for uh, OPEC Plus to pump more barrels, to uh, put pressure on gasoline prices at the pump. OPEC Plus said, well, no, I mean, this is our sovereign decision what you have to do, you do. And then the US subsequently went ahead and released strategic petroleum reserves. This time around, we do know there were uh, US delegations in Riyadh. Wasn't really about energy. It was about other political uh, factors. And I'm sure you have seen subsequently um, news reports that there, uh, the, the Saudis particularly were uh, after U.S. Patriot missiles, they are running low, and there's, of course, you know, the Yemen war continues. And yes, we were told by our sources as well that the negotiation was nothing to do with energy. It was about other factors. 
but then the quid pro quo was very much, well, let's keep oil production or let's keep the deal going as it is. Well, and that's interesting uh, to keep it going as it is, because another interesting development out of the meeting was the decision to actually not adjourn to keep the meeting in session, which is, I think that's a first that I can remember so that they can make immediate adjustments if required. This sort of flexibility requires remarkable coordination between the member countries. And as you just said, like the uh, each country has its own political agenda. What would you say about that and the, the, the historical implications and or the future of that, given with the pressures from Omicron? I mean, the point you make is very, very valid. We haven't seen OPEC ever do this, right? Just keeping the meeting uh, open. I think this is going to be the longest OPEC meeting ever, I think 33 right. days or something. Um, but well, this was a Saudi move, by the way, very clever, because again, yes, there was a political element to this meeting because of uh, broader considerations between the two countries, Saudi Arabia and US. But like I was saying, Prince Abdulaziz wants to make sure that the downside to prices is capped, right? Like there is, the prices don't keep falling. And which is why his point is, look, if prices fall uh, further, let's say below $70, we are going to be ready to act. Um, and yes, I think that that does portray extreme amounts of cohesion between the group. And I know this from him directly is that he is talking to ministers on a regular basis. They are monitoring the market. And effectively, the, this was a very clever move. Look, I don't think they're going to meet before the 4th of January. But just by saying that, he suddenly made every single uh, trader who was going to short crude oil uh, because OPEC weren't going to pause they just were too scared to do that, right? So that, that it was definitely a masterpiece in terms of, a, uh, of kind of coming up with a move on the spot uh, to try and not get mar the market to sell off. Yeah, it, it was quite ingenious. So do you think that the other, and I, I know this is a broad question, but um, do the other players fall into line without, you know, generally here? Are, 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 is there a black swan event by some other OPEC plus member, like uh, I'm thinking of those in Northeastern Europe, like the Russians. Is it, I, I just don't, you know, it, it, and it sort of begs the question about spare capacity. In my lifetime, you know, Saudi Arabia is the only country that can even discuss having uh, spare capacity. So could you comment on that? I think they just fall in line here, um, especially with Omicron, you know, jet fuel demand, um, people being around for the, through the vacation holiday season here. Where do you think the other players fall into line here? So there are, I'll give you two different uh, or two aspects to this, right? First and foremost, interestingly enough, Saudi has been really the only country with uh, sufficient spare capacity in the history of the oil market. But right now, it is the UAE that has more spare capacity. And partly because the UAE has been investing a lot more in the upstream, uh, of course, Saudi Arabia has spare capacity, it always will, but UAE has been doing more work. Um, and I think that's the interesting one, the, the black swan type of, I'd say, you know, not an event, but just generally, if, if, um, if you argue that relations could deteriorate much more than Russia, Saudi, it's the one to watch out for is UAE. They are the ones who've held up OPEC meetings in the, in the past. They kind of want to show, look, they are you know, they are big. They don't want to play second fiddle uh, to Saudi Arabia anymore. And they kind of have big aspirations. They wanted a higher baseline. So there is definitely something there to watch out for. And we've been saying this for some time is that, look, it's going to be UAE 
if, if Saudis need to extend the current deal beyond the end of next year, watch out for UAE much more than Russia. I think they are going to be very, very difficult to get on board because they have high aspirations. They've now got foreign companies involved, so they've paid the money, so they want to grow. But on Russia, to your point, yeah, absolutely, they're going to fall in line. Look, it's very hard for Russia to cut production in the winter months, given right. the weather. Even just but for their if, own their own supply. Exactly, right? Like pipelines can freeze. But if it came to that and you know, we really lost more demand, we don't think Russia is going to have problems pausing production. And let's not forget what's going on between Russia and Ukraine right now. And clearly the bills are rising for Vladimir Putin if you're going to have... Um, just generally more troop deployment. Yeah, you set a bunch of divisions up on like it, it's not the supply chains, all the, the tail of the all the tail effect of uh, of what the, the, this this more uh, velocity type projections are. It, it, it it's difficult to manage. Um, and I I'd like to get to that in the in the as we if we have time here, Amrita. But you told Bloomberg that you thought that there was still lots of pent up demand for oil. Do you think that the these continual new threats of, of, of virus have tempered that a bit? Or what's your feeling about the, say, the next six to three to six months of oil demand? Look, the next three months will be challenging. There's no doubt about that. Winter months are always going to be challenging unless and until we get the whole world vaccinated. And right now we are about 50% vaccination. And in a way, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not a medical person, but I will say this much. If you think... Uh, or rather for Western worlds, you know, everybody is running towards getting boosters or giving the population boosters. But if you think you need to mitigate the overall risks around COVID, we need to vaccinate the developing countries. That's where the strains are developing and that's how it's spreading all around the world, right? So vaccinating the world is going to be important. And again, that takes time. The reason I talk about pent up demand, and I absolutely think there is a lot of that still around, it's because of Asia. West, in the West, we all had a summer this year Countries were opening up, we were able to go on holiday, and slowly life is starting to get back to normal, you know, coming back to the office and just things we were used to pre-COVID. In Asia, that was absolutely not the case. Asia was still very much in um, degrees of lockdown, right? Like there were restrictions. Now, I mean, basically Asia as a whole outside of India had this zero COVID policy for the longest period of time. Slowly but surely, they're abandoning that. Australia was first, then Korea, Japan. Yes, because of Omicron, they have slowed down the pace of opening up. But you know, Indonesia, for instance, is now saying by the end of the year, they're going to remove all restrictions. The only country that hasn't removed restrictions is still China. I don't think China is going to remove it till the Winter Olympics in Beijing in February because they don't want case counts to go up. After that, I think, again, it will probably take till the end of the year for China to open up. But I think countries are realizing that... Um, COVID is endemic rather than pandemic. And that's why there is pent up demand. Because if you think about the Asian population, they, they want to do the same things that we wanted to do. They do want to go on holiday. They want to go travel. And that's where you're going to see a lot of demand coming through, definitely in that six-month period, but not in the three-month period. So as the Omicron variant has continued to make news and is continuing to show spikes in, in uh, populations, um, recently, the big news was, and you touched on it briefly, was the Biden administration's effort to coordinate the S Strategic Petroleum Reserve or SPR releases with the world's largest oil consuming countries. Now, I know that there was some discussions about with other countries that have uh, SPRs. And um, it seems to me that 
that you know all politics is local and uh, this is mostly a, a, a posturing by biden to appeal to his own people of all political stripes um would you give the audience a little bit of an understanding of the purpose of sprs um and how this is this really isn't from my own experience, the right way to manage this issue? And I'll just leave it at that because you're much more expert than me. So please expand on these SBR releases. I like how you framed it. Uh, let's talk about how an SBR should be used. An SBR should only be used when there is a real supply disruption. There is none right now. Yes, supplies are tight. Yes, OPEC is managing supply, but they are bringing back 400,000 barrels per day, or OPEC plus rather, 400,000 barrels per day every month. Granted, they can only bring half of it back because their own production is falling because again, there's been no investment, but that isn't an outage. The last time there was a coordinated IEA US SPR release was back in 2011 when we know there was the Libyan civil war. So why was the SPR used this time around? It was a 100% political move. This is, I think it's very important to ask the question why, right? This isn't about $3 gasoline prices. I was in the US just last week. And honestly, I was in Houston, I was in New York and it was a bit like, okay, $3 gasoline isn't that high. Traffic was still insane. We haven't seen demand come off. People are complaining that sure prices are high, but we haven't seen demand come off at all. So the point is, this is what is going on in Washington. There's a blame game going on Republicans and Democrats and President Biden just wanted to, he needs to be seen to be doing something and SPR was an easy one to do. He also knows that if the US did it by itself, it wouldn't have the same impact. The IEA rightly so said, we're not getting involved because there isn't a supply disruption. So then he went and begged the Asian countries to join. Now the problem is, by the way, as of today, none of the Asian countries have actually followed through by releasing. They announced right. it none of them have released it. And the worst bit, the US 32 million barrels, it's an exchange, it needs to be paid back later on, precisely because there's no supply disruption. So it can only be an exchange. Of that 32, only 4.8 got taken. So it's a non-event other than a political... Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. But, but you know, the, the interesting thing is, now they've kept it open because the take-up was so limited, They've just kept it open into perpetuity. And that's smart because in a way, you could argue that kind of caps the short-term price outlook, right? Because in theory, you could get more bids and more prices come out. So it's smart that way. But no, I like, as of right now, it's a non-event. So I, I want to go off script a little bit because you, you mentioned the underinvestment upstream a little bit, except for the UAE and and of course, Saudi Arabia always is spending money at at Gahar at uh, what's the big field there? Uh, Gawar. Yes, and um, but there's a you know the more I read recently, like there's six, like I'm gonna say several hundred billion dollars of underinvestment since COVID in the downstream. You know the and let's just use a hundred million barrels per day as as a rough moniker because it's an easy number to work with. If you look at three to five percent decline. Nat natural declines. Um, big fields are hard to find. There, there's been some discussion. There's been some, there's been a couple of fields offshore Brazil, offshore Africa, and of course, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. But does this, do, do, does this underinvestment continue to speak to a, 
uh, and I hate to put you on the spot, Emrita, about a about a price, but I think this is continually uh, helps OPEC Plus, Russia, other producers to keep oil in a band that they could, that they're comfortable with. Um, I think that there's a giant super cycle of potential crude oil uh, investment coming in the near future here as companies, uh, company, big IOCs um, and the state-owned enterprises are able to uh, put capital back into the, into the exploration and development phases without really affecting their business plan. Um, can you just expand on your, your understanding of the future capital spending in the, in the sector? So I, I agree and I disagree with what you were saying. I completely agree with the overall thesis of yours that, yeah, it's a massive super cycle. And our price forecast for next year has been $85 Brent for a very long time, for three years. This was pre-COVID. You know why? Because, I mean, if anything, it was above 90. We cut it to 85 because demand is still recovering. It hasn't gone back to 2019 levels because of COVID. But that thesis was driven by underinvestment. CapEx globally, instead of being six to seven hundred billion dollars, that was between 2011 to 2015, is now between three to four hundred billion dollars, of which about 50 billion dollars is international oil companies or energy companies. And now increasingly 25% of their capex is going into green energy. There is no money going into oil and gas. Even in the US, all the shale producers I met with, either they are under shareholder pressures to pressure to reduce debt or increasingly more of their capex is actually going towards methane reduction and flaring reduction. So it's infrastructure spend rather than actually on production. So yes, oil prices are going to be high, not just, I mean, and the, the, the bigger problem we have with the underinvestment is because, and this is where I slightly disagree with you saying that there's going to be a wave of investment coming. I think the wave of investment might actually end up being lower than what we've seen previously, or that's my worry, rather than saying this is a strong view, for the simple reason that nobody now, nowadays, wants any company, whatever size, unless you're a national oil company or you're an independent, a small independent, to actually invest in oil and gas. It is bizarre, regardless of the fact that, look, in the past few years, oil and gas companies didn't give the returns that other sectors were giving. Fair enough, because shale oil had really killed prices. Today, um, if you look at um, returns, energy companies or energy sector is one of the best returns in the world. Now, shareholders are putting pressure on companies and saying, Yes, you might have very good returns, which, by the way, was their number one concern a few years ago. Right. But now they're saying to them, we can't value you in the future. So split out your business into renewables and oil and gas. Renewables, which doesn't make any money right now, we will value that positively. So my worry is prices, yes, will be higher because we haven't been able to get demand off, but supplies keep falling. I don't know whether that necessarily gives us more investment because the world has and, and financing and just the shareholder mindset has changed so much that the narrative is just one-sided. The narrative is we need green energy and nobody's talking about the fact that if you don't invest, you're going to get energy poverty. But that needs to shift. So, so I'll put it this way. I'm not even saying that we won't get CapEx to increase next year. As of right now, what we've tallied up, CapEx barely increases globally next year, just, just as an example, just as an FYI. But I'd put it this way, if CapEx doesn't increase now with oil where it is and where gas has been, it's not coming back ever. Boy, that's an interesting comment. I, I've been seeing the same things. It's, it's like you're going to get punished 
if you don't push your capex toward green energy so the big companies are you know the, the giant uh multinationals like shell and bp and total and that they're, they're it's easy to say that and and actually to do it but they are also that's also in the in the scope of where the big fine they exxon uh, uh chevron they're the ones that can find big fields so Amrit, I'm really concerned that energy poverty becomes part of the narrative here in the next five or six years. I, the developing countries need cheap energy to get Absolutely. to. The, and, and so how do you square the circle here? I don't have an idea. So for me, governments have to become realistic and they need to be truthful. You can't have, I mean, let's literally just talk about the US government like we did because we were talking about the SPR. You can't have a government who is talking and is, is basically the policies are green energy, we need to you know, move away from fossil fuels and so on, on the one hand, and the same government doing an SPR release because it thinks $3 gasoline is too expensive. Why would a consumer move away from a gasoline car if prices are cheap? Governments can't have it both ways. Energy transition is going to be expensive. Energy transition is going to be extremely expensive. And the, the real issues and the tensions with energy transition is that the governments haven't educated the population. I think it's very easy for people to talk about energy transition because the general mindset is, oh, I'm very happy with, and I'm, I'm supporting energy transition as long as you pay for it and I don't, and my standard of living doesn't go down. Each and every one of us will have to make sacrifices, whether it's being traveling less, flying less, uh, having less electrical gadgets, right? All of this, but not a single government is actually talking about it. Look, for sure, um, battery technology developments will help all of that. But we need $100 trillion of investment in renewables for the next 10 years if we are to not have energy poverty. And we just don't have that kind of money being spent, right? And the, the thing that needs to change, and I, I almost hope that energy uh, poverty becomes a topic of discussion, because if you look at COP26, for instance, and if you, if you think about any of these forums, the only side that is being highlighted is climate change. You're going to get cities submerged underwater, which absolutely is valid. But we are not talking about the other side of it, which is you have, what, two billion people coming out uh, from the lower kind of classes to the middle classes. They need energy. And without energy, there's not economic growth. So that realism, and, and I'll tell you why that realism hasn't been communicated, because it's a lot easier for governments to come out with uh, policies that impact the supply side. As soon as you start to talk about impacting the demand side, it's the voter base. And guess what? I know it sounds crazy because I come from a democracy and I live in one. The country that's probably going to show us how it's going to be done successfully is going to be China because they have one policy and they're trying to implement that. Yes, they also have short and long-term tensions. But the problem we have in the West is every government is pretty much running in a two-year cycle. So they can't come up with long-term policies. And therefore, you basically, I mean, you, you have policymakers on the one hand coming out of COP26 and saying this is you know, a great achievement, immediately cutting back on green taxes in the UK and Germany and then SPR in the US because they are worried about voter backlash. That's so interesting. And before we, and I'd like to uh, sometime in 2022, we'll get together and expand on that again, because I, I really think that that's the, that's really where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, is this, is, uh, is the difference between the perception of supply 
versus the reality of demand. And um, I thank you for that. Uh, Amrita, before we go, I, I'd like you to, to, to the, the big news these days is the, is the uh, as we've mentioned briefly, is the pressure from uh, Russia on the Ukraine, um, the pushback against Nord Stream 2. Would you just give us a little bit of overview as to the, about the pipeline? I know we talked about it before, but I think people need to understand the reasoning behind the EU's, uh, like the law and the reason that it isn't, uh, it isn't helping with the, with the uh, gas demand in Northern Europe and uh, other places, nor the Netherlands. I, I, um, there's a lot more to this than just what's been that's in the news. If you could go down in the weeds a little bit on that about the pipeline and and its effects. For sure. Look, I mean, there's two things going on in Europe right now. One, which is very interesting, is despite such high record high European gas prices we haven't seen demand come off as much as we should, right? I'm not saying people like you and I will necessarily turn off our electricity because it's winter, but industrial demand, uh, fertilizer companies, for instance, we saw them turn down uh, rates, industrial production rates basically, and that would have freed up more gas for residential use. But now of course, what has happened is fertilizer prices have gone screaming up and so they have restarted, right? At the same time, you've had a lot of European countries um, kind of suggest work from home. So you've got both rescom demand going up, so residential demand going up, and you've now got industrial demand going up. So again, this goes back in a way to the energy transition bit we were talking about. Demand is very hard to lower. Even at these prices, we are talking about 100 to 120 euros per megawatt hours. In dollars per MMBTU, I think we're talking well over $30 per MMBTU, but yeah, I, I should check that. <laughs> My conversions are not necessarily- Yeah, I, I always mix up the conversions too, but it, hell, yeah. here's what I'll tell you. It's really, really expensive. It's really expensive, exactly. Now, so that's one side of it. So therefore, we Europe needs more gas. Now, there's two sources, right? It's LNG, but LNG, Asia has got a very strong uh, grip on it because China, Korea, Japan, even India, they're big consumers and they will pay up pretty much anything to make sure that they don't have blackouts and they don't have to cut industrial production. So it just gets super expensive. So Europe has always relied on Russian gas, Russian pipeline gas. And what has ended up happening with Nord Stream 2 is it's always been, we've highlighted this for a while, that there will be a lot of regulatory process involved. And there are lots of gray areas. And lo and behold, Germany turns out and says, oh, guess what? You need to be Gazprom. You need to be headquartered, the subsidiary, in Germany. And it can't be in Switzerland. And I'm wondering, by the way, this pipeline has been on the cards for years. And you realize this now? Anyway, I'll leave that to one side that they didn't realize that they were headquartered in Switzerland. So now the process of them headquartering or getting the headquarters moved to Germany, we think takes another six months. So the earliest Nord Stream 2 comes online, we think, is September. So the problem is, and by the way, the forecasts are calling for a very, very cold Christmas and early January. So I mean, the joke in our uh, office is that, you know, buy some sweaters uh, because we are not going to have electricity and, you know, the, and that Ukraine might actually have to rely on firewood. And, you know, it's, it's only half a joke because this is the reality of it. If, if Russian supplies aren't coming in, then I just don't know how high European gas prices have to go. Well, I mean, we have a forecast. We think it can go another 40 to 50 uh, euros higher here at least. So I think that's where we stand. If anything, 
you know, for world peace, I would say we probably don't want a cold winter. No, it's, it's, it's a scary, it's a scary situation. It really is a scary situation, not just uncomfortable. It's scary when the, uh, you know, the, the Putin has a plan. Um, it's a long-term plan. Um, Russia is going to be a power in this global uh, geo in geopolitics. And um, it, it, it leads to my last question. I mean, uh, does Russia, given current uh, supply demand on the gas side, you know, if it's a cold winter, does Russia have excess gas capacity to sell? Like I, it, it, I have to worry about, wonder about that. It's a big cold country like Canada and uh, you know, there, and the population is spread out. Like uh, I'm worried that even though they still have, they have lots of reserves. Could you comment on their supply? You are spot on. And uh, you know, I know people want to politicize the whole gas from North Stream 2 pipeline thing. The reality is, even if North Stream 2 was running this year, Russia did not have enough gas to send to Europe. They had a very cold winter last year. I've read headlines, I think our Russia analysts were saying, I think it's, again, some parts of Russia, the coldest in 42 years now. They had a cold winter. They had a very strong summer industrial production. So their own gas demand was very high. Gas supplies, massively depleted inventories. So they were prioritizing rebuilding their own inventories because they were expecting a cold winter, which is what they are getting right now. After that, they started to refill inventories in Europe. The process had just started and then you, again, you get the cold winter. So yes, even if all the pipes were running right now, we're not sure that they necessarily even have the production to give. Um, you're seeing that in oil as well. A lot of their oil uh, companies are effectively saying, you know, we have maxed out spare capacity. So um, yeah, I mean, look, Russian production will rise. We think there's a lot of production in 2023, but they have declined rates as well. They had to shut in a lot of fields, um, mostly oil fields when oil prices went negative last year, you'll remember, but those fields also have a lot of associated gas. So we've seen that with some of the company production data that we collect that associated gas production has been falling. So yes, there is a political angle, uh, of course there is, but the realities are also that their own gas demand is rising very sharply and supplies have been falling behind that. Well, and I can just tell from, uh, I can tell the audience from personal experience, and I know that a lot of the people that listen to this know where I come from, and you just don't flip a switch and bring production on, even in conventional exactly. fields, like, and especially in the wintertime. I, I've just experienced it myself. It's like one day becomes a week, the cost becomes exponential, um, and all of a sudden you're still not there. So until the spring and summer of 2022, I don't see an ability to bring much excess production back on. Amrita, this has been great. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I know that you're a busy person and we really appreciate you coming on for half an hour to talk to us today. I, we're gonna see a big take up on this in discussion. As always, my last question, do you have a chance to read anything besides reports and data analysis these days? What are you reading? Yeah, I have been, I mean, th this couple of, um, Weeks have actually been um, mostly about uh, reading about Russia, Russia, Ukraine, Russian gas, and so on and so forth. But no, I am actually in the process of reading uh, Home in the World by Amartya Sen, uh, who is my grand uncle. He's, he's written that book. Um, so yeah, I, am, um, I have been reading that. It was given to me by my dad um, for Christmas. So I have been, I've started reading that. It's, it's a big book. That's great. We'll put it up on our website and people will help uh, sell copies. Um, it's been great. 
we'll Thank talk you so to, have a have a very good christmas and and uh we'll talk early in the new year absolutely can't wait have a lovely christmas all of you as always uh great chatting thank you so much thanks everyone for listening to this episode of energy security cubed on the canadian global affairs podcast network you can find the cgai network on itunes spotify and google play if you like the show give it a rating you can also find the canadian global affairs institute on facebook twitter and linkedin If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgai.ca/support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer Joe Callan and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed. <laughs>